0: It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the ta- at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table, I thought that was interesting grammar, by the way, at table, not at the table, kind of sounded like at hospital or something from Britain, but at table, as he reclined at table, and, and it signifies that everyone knew what this meant. This wasn't just food, okay? Being at table means more than food, all right? That's, that's the import there. Um, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this, and they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Our series is Whiter Than Snow. It comes from Isaiah 118, where God is writing to his people and telling them that they're unclean telling them that they have dirtied themselves by adopting the world's oppression, adopting the world's power struggle, that they have excluded foreigners, they've done the things, they've they've despised widows, they've cast out lepers, they've not cared for orphans. These are the accusations. They've become power-hungry. And so Isaiah, speaking for God, says... This is what God's going to do for you. And you know Isaiah to be one of the richest prophets, major prophets, that speaks of the coming Messiah, the figure that God would send, the individual he would send, to cleanse his people and to make them the very nation that he had commanded them to be, that they would pursue justice, that they would be merciful. That they would be a holy and righteous people, getting rid of the idolatry that they had uh, taken on, that they had adopted and assimilated. And idolatry is always an oppressive thing because it's built on this quid pro quo. It's built on if I do this for my deities, this is what they'll do for me. It's not built on grace, grace is fundamentally one sided. It's what God does for us. And so it gives us a clue that you can identify idolatry in our hearts. We can identify idolatry in our hearts when we say to something to, to God like, but God, don't you know what I've done for you? God, why am I suffering? Why is this situation what I'm in? Don't you know how I've sacrificed? And so God promises to come to cleanse his people, which is not only the purification, but the transformation that he's able to accomplish through his grace. But it's that attitude of, look what I've done for God, that we see in the text. Um, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees' idea of sacrifice. And we'll talk about that as we go through The text and other texts today but i think this is the lesson jesus models for us the sacrifice that god desires god does want sacrifice but the sacrifice he wants is mercy or compassion this is why what are the two great commandments love god and love your neighbor show compassion have compassion within yourself for others. So Jesus models that for us. And um, this is kind of picking up on on what we ended with last week. How does Jesus speak into this desire to exclude this purity culture that we tend to step into? The first thing I want to ask is, I'm going to kind of ask all these in questions again, is why does Jesus challenge uh, the Pharisees' sacrifice? Doesn't God want sacrifices? Isn't that something that God commands, especially in the Old Testament? But it's not just the Old Testament. Paul picks up on this theme in Romans chapter 1 and 2, a very familiar passage to, to us as believers, and says that, that we're to be living sacrifices. But the context of Romans 1 and 2 is very interesting because Romans 1 through 11, Paul is speaking to a very specific group of people who believed that they had been righteous and obedient. He undermines that in chapter 3. These were Jewish believers who thought, well, when God talks about sinners, he's not talking about me. And so he he demolishes that self-righteousness that creeps into the heart, that self-righteousness of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son who says, Father, look at what of all I've done for you. I've never stolen from you. I've obeyed all your commands, and you've never given me this party. This is is the first half of Romans, or most of Romans 1 uh, through 11, is Paul addressing that self-righteousness and proving that there's none righteous and that God had to be just and yet justify the ungodly. And the way he did that was through the sacrifice of a sinless person, Jesus. And then, so chapter 12 is a pivot point where Paul has demolished their self-righteous arguments. He then moves to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. And what does he talk about in Romans 12? He talks, first of all, in the first paragraph about the body of Jesus, how we're all part of it, whether whether we're different or not, whether our gifts are different or not. And then verse 9, he starts talking about how love lives, what love looks like very consistent with the idea that the sacrifice Jesus wants, the sacrifice God calls us to, is the sacrifice of love. It's not the great things you do for God, which sounds like a poster somewhere, isn't it? It's the compassion within yourself for others that God says, that's the sacrifice I'm looking for. That, Because that's consistent, as we'll see, with who God is. God desires sacrifice. But if you have your Bibles and would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, God challenges their sacrifice. When you come to appear before me, verse 12, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. They don't go together. They were blind to their behavior towards their neighbor. And they thought, well, we'll just make sacrifices to God and he'll be happy. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. And even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Verse 17, uh, verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. He's calling them to repentance. Um, And then he promises in verse 18 that he's going to do the cleaning. But look at verse 17, end of verse 16, "Uh, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. So why is God, is God opposed to sacrifice? No, he's commanded it, especially the guilt offerings that were presented in the scripture. But what he wants is a heart filled with compassion. So why is he attacking the Pharisees? Well, number one, they believe their performance satisfied God whether it was their Sabbath keeping, whether it was their almsgiving, whether it was their fastings and their long prayers made before men, they could point to a list of things they did for God. And God's response would be, so what? Even your righteousness is filthy, filthy. And so believing that, well, look at, look at my list. I've checked it twice. I, I saw something on Facebook recently about, you know, Santa should be investigated because he offers a quid pro quo to children. If you do good, you'll get a gift, right? Um, but they could point to their list of goodness, and God would say to them, it's unsatisfactory. What satisfied me is Jesus sacrifice for you, and what satisfies me is that you image me. We're going to see that, that compassion really is, um, is imaging God. So they believe their performance sacrifice satisfied God. And they focused on externals and not their heart. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 15. When he addresses this issue directly, the, the disciples were eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus has to tell them, it's not, it's not what goes into you that defiles you. That's not what defiles a person. What defiles a person is what comes out of them because what comes out of them comes from their heart. Purity is a heart issue. Cleanliness is a heart issue. That's why God says in Isaiah 1, I, I can't tolerate your sacrifices, your services, your convocations, your worship services when your hearts are truly far from me. When you're oppressing and taking advantage of and not loving your neighbor. Thirdly, they believed that people were actually the contagion. That somehow, if I buffered myself, if I created space, distance between me and sinners, me and people that I deem unclean, then somehow it, it protects me from that virus of evil and sin and makes me more righteous before God. And then finally... They were willing to sacrifice people for their identity of purity. And Jesus really zingers them on that, doesn't he? He says, the sick are the ones who need a physician. I didn't come to call the righteous. And By the way, that's that's a mockery. He's not declaring these people righteous. He's speaking in there, you think you're right. I didn't call to come people who i didn't come to call people who think they're righteous i came for sinners and paul reminds us that 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 characterizes all of us the very physician that the unhealthy needed the pharisees were trying to keep from trying to keep the sick from but that's because they were looking at their sacrifices for God, what they were doing for God instead of what God had done and would do for them. So how does mercy challenge our sense of purity? Where do, why does compassion become something that's difficult for us? This is why Jesus in part is addressing the Pharisees' idea of purity, but how does it, how does it affect our sense of purity? Wolf makes a good argument. He talks about assimilation. He says assimilation is not in, uh, is not loving someone. I, I come from a culture or tradition that says, in order to be part of us, you have to assimilate. You have to. You have to. In order to survive, you have to. Uh, you have to become like us. You have to take on our identity and our traditions as a community. And assimilation, he says, is really just a benign form of exclusion. Um, And we have this tendency to exclude. We have this tendency to exclude people um, because we want to buffer ourselves. So how does mercy challenge that sense of purity? The first thing is that mercy demands that we embrace those we deem unclean. Um, This is Peter as he is having his vision and the, the pork is coming down on a, on a carpet in his, in his dream. And God's uh, voice says, go and eat. And he says, I've never eaten anything unclean. And then there's a knock at the door, and it's a Gentile. And Peter makes the connection, right? Uh, and the connection is that what God has declared clean, he's not allowed to declare unclean. And he made that connection because God said it. Um Mercy demands that we get over those barriers that we've created, that we tear them down. Love fundamentally is a boundary tearing down activity. It removes those things that buffer us from others. It removes that sense of disgust that we feel um, at people, whether we find out they've committed some important sin or whether they're a part of a class that we don't feel comfortable with or we feel somehow is... Um, is disgusting to us, or whether they they, they have some political view that we don't like. It demands that we open ourselves to them, that we embrace them. Uh, It threatens, fundamentally, this is why it's so disgusting, this is why it's so hard for us, it threatens our sense of self, the traditions, the the identity that we have created about who we are, how we view ourselves uh, in this world. Uh, selfhood, this is uh, Wolf again, Merce, Merce Wolf. Selfhood is who I am. It is at root a boundary. The self is extended to all that the self envelops and the boundary of disgust extends to all that defies the self. So as I create my identity, who I am, where I am, what I do, what my purpose is, who my people are, how I think of myself as a healthy person, a successful person. As I build that identity, it creates a boundary. At root, that's what identity is. It's a boundary of who I am and how I view uh, others in relation to myself. And so the psychological response to anything that is outside or separate from me as an individual is disgust. It's repulsion. Uh, This is what uh, Beck calls the buffered self. It's self separated from others rather than self in community. Um, He roots our sinful identity in making a misunderstanding of our image-bearing quality. We have this sense that we are image-bearers. And so we look at God, and God is self-sufficient And we conclude that to be in relationship with God, we should be self-sufficient. This is Adam and Eve in the garden saying we will be like the most high God. And what did they do? They didn't submit themselves to God. They wanted to be equal with God. And so they took up their self-sufficiency and wrapped their identity around that self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is catastrophic to compassion and empathy we end up asking the question of someone in need why can't you take care of yourself and the point of that is that we've created an identity around one person us we've created an identity and as americans we are intensely individualistic we think of ourselves only in the boundaries of the self that we've created instead of seeing ourselves and building our identities around our community of people. In that kind of situation, when we help people, it's the strong people, the self-sufficient people helping the weak, rather than as dependent people helping other dependent people. So the reason mercy And we can say, and we're good at this. East Cobbers are great at this. Let's raise money in our school for this needy family. And you can't help it. It comes as the strong helping the weak because we've fundamentally created an identity around our self-sufficiency, around ourselves as individuals within the world. Embrace threatens our position of power when we embrace others when we show mercy and compassion with that kind of an identity it threatens our position in the community that we live if we tear down those barriers and if we open ourselves to other people this is what is happening in the book of galatians which we just studied the people put this is what paul says in chapter 2 some people want to exclude you so that you will seek them out. He says in chapter 6 that the people who are persecuting you are trying to boast in numbers and how many converts they have. And they're trying to show have a good showing of the flesh. Why? To avoid persecution and to boast in you. It's all about their power in the community, their position in the community. By embracing the outcast, Jesus underscored the sinfulness of the persons, the Pharisees in our text in Matthew 9, and the systems in place that actually cast them out. So by Jesus sitting with tax collectors and Pharisees, he was directly going after the identity that the Pharisees had created and the power that they were trying to maintain within their religious structure and exposing the self-righteousness and the pride behind it. How do mercy and sacrifice actually relate? I think it's, it's fair to say, I think it's a good argument to say that in God's mind, when we talk about purity, when we talk about being a holy people, a people of God, a church committed to walking faithfully with God, that mercy is a component, a significant component, of holiness. Mercy is part of holiness. This is what I read to you in Isaiah chapter 1. I think you could go to Malachi chapter 2. I think you could go to Amos chapter 5. You could go throughout the scripture and see that holiness is, is in part obedience to God's law, but it's also showing compassion to others. Now that creates a fundamental tension that I don't think is going to go away because holiness always has an expulsive nature to it. And I think it was Wolf that uh, that said that, but there's always going to be this tension of I have to obey, but I have to love people who don't obey. How do I do that? But scripture defines compassion, love as part of what it means to be holy. That's why Isaiah can come to the end of his accusation and say, "Learn, cease to do evil, learn to do good, pursue justice, pursue the, home, the, the fatherless, pursue the orphan, pursue... And the New Testament expands that. Those who are in jail, those who are in prison, we're to have a, a broad ministry of compassion to our community. And so Scripture presents mercy as part of what it means to be pure. To be the people of God. And Jesus presents mercy as sacrifice. I think the way one of these authors said it is he actually folds mercy into sacrifice. And this is kind of how I led the, the sermon today is, the sacrifice that God wants from us is the sacrifice of compassion. Because what that fundamentally is doing is, when I say I'm going to love others, I have to tear down my identity. What a sacrifice that is. And I would argue it's one of the hardest things you will ever do is to reshape your sense of who you are, your sense of self around Jesus and let those boundaries that you have created of self-sufficiency, of, your, of, of who you are in your own identity, to let those things be torn down, to let those things be removed. Jesus actually reframes Uh, mercy as the sacrifice that god desires Um, israel had followed the path of the world with competition and power this is what we find in galatians right if you be be careful paul says if you bite and devour one another you're going to be consumed by one another this is what individualism does it creates a competitive culture it creates a culture of envy and of strife it creates a culture of bitterness. It removes forgiveness. We're in competition because we as individuals are trying to frame ourselves, maintain who we are within a community. This is what the psalmist says, David says in Psalm uh, fifty-one, seventeen: what 17. What are the sacrifices that God wants? A broken and a contrite heart. Now, I would stop here and say again, we cannot make the liberal move. The liberal move or the, the, liberal Christian, the, the liberal movement within Christianity would say that all that holiness is, is compassion, is the pursuit of justice for others. It's, it's not all that obedience to the word of God is. It's not all that God is calling us to. Compassion is part of what God is calling us to as he calls us to keep the commandments, to seek to obey and be faithful to God. It's both. But there is this constant tension of how to do that. Fundamentally, mercy requires the reshaping of our identity centered on Christ. I think I have a quote here. Yeah, this is from Exclusion and Embrace. Wolff says, the will to give ourselves to others and welcome them to readjust our identities to make space for them is prior to any judgment about others except that of identifying them in their humanity. So in short, what he's saying is we see each other as image bearers fundamentally. That's who we are not what sins have you committed, not what economic class are you in, not what race are you in, what gender are you in. We see each other fundamentally as image bearers. And that has to be the starting point of our judgment. When we judge others, the first thing we say is, we're all image bearers of God, we're all sinners. This is how God defines us. And from that point on, We open ourselves to others and welcome them, adjusting our identities to make space for people within our lives. Mercy demands, God's call to love your neighbor demands the reshaping of your identity, centering it on Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 2, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. I have been crucified with Christ. I have another quote. It's just not up there. The will to give our... Oh, I said that one. Never mind. Um, Finally, mercy requires holiness by grace. Guide our sacrifice. If we're going to love others, uh, if we're going to give ourselves to others and open space within ourselves uh, for others, it, it requires that we look at our purity... We look at whatever progress we've made in our obedience to God as a work of grace and not like the Pharisees as an act of our will and sacrifice. And so if you're struggling to love others, if you're struggling to make room for others in your life, especially people that you would be repulsed by or that from people that, let's just face it, you just don't like them. I just don't like being with that person. They're just hard to be with. And so I'm just going to buffer myself because they just don't fit in my identity. If you're struggling with that, it's because your identity isn't built around the unbelievable grace of God that has purified you and welcomed you into his family. Fundamentally, if you're struggling, your identity is built around some performance that you've created. Some performance that you were using to buffer yourself when I um, was going through these books next to one of them he he made this whole argument about how we try and quarantine God from anything that's weak and he talked about our health as one of those things that that if we're going to be self-sufficient if we're going to be divine if we're going to build an identity around our performance we typically turn to good health and I wrote next to it Man is that he's God. Now, there's another wrong with good health. Good health is important. But it's not who you are. It's not your identity. And You can have great health, and God can still bring you into great trial. What's that going to do to your identity in that moment? If you've eaten nothing but kale and run 10 miles a day, I don't even know how you eat kale. I've started eating quinoa, is that how you say it? In my rice, it's a quinoa rice, it's really good. And I feel like, well, look at me, I'm being all healthy. Yeah, right. Coated in sour cream and, I was kidding. Um, we, We do this with our health, and people who aren't healthy, we kind of push outside the boundary, because after all, if they just worked at it a little harder, they could achieve it too. And so we create a health identity that actually excludes people and criticizes others. And if you don't believe me, go to junior high school or go to high school. When you walk into our schools, you will see individuals who are creating their identity around their wealth, around their parents' um, economic status, around their health, around their academic ability, around their athletic ability. And what's it doing? It's exclusion. It's criticizing what's not me. It's disgust. Ew, you're disgusting. You don't have cool clothes. What's sad is that that doesn't change when we become adults. We just do it in different ways. And it doesn't change when we become Christians. We just take Christianity and use that to create our identity and our sense of self. And so... This idea of God's cleansing grace that none of us are who we are or are anything apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ changes fundamentally how we view ourselves and how we view others. And and this is the only thing, guys. This is the power of God, though. But it is the only thing that changes how we relate to each other. Because any relationship based on performance is doomed. It's doomed to expectation, to criticism, to judgment, and ultimately to exclusion. The final question is: how does Jesus how is Jesus defined by mercy? And I'm I'm almost out of time. I'm going to run through this quickly. I say quickly. Yeah, I'm going to take a few minutes here. Turn with me to Philippians 2. And this is one of your study questions. I would I would urge you to go through these together as a family or individually. This is Paul in Philippians chapter 2. It's a beautiful presentation of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's a beautiful presentation of how Jesus and the Father think about themselves. Paul says in verse 1, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Notice these language, the comfort that comes from love, God's love, our experience in Christ, any participation in the Spirit, the sharing of the Spirit that we have, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you know who he just described without saying it? He just described the Trinity. He just described Father, Son, and Spirit in their relationship. Same mind, same affection, same will for each other. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing, I'll reshape it, reframe it, do nothing from an identity of self outside of Christ. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You know why he can say that? Because that's exactly what God did. God creates identity first in triunity, in triune community. The identity of God is not one individual. It's Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the love and the affection and the unity of mind and will that they have together. Individualism is pagan identity. Let each of you not look only in his own interest, but the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. And listen to how he describes the self-giving of Christ. Listen to how he describes Christ tearing down the boundaries that should be there and creating his identity, or thinking how he manifests his identity, not creates it. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. So, what do you see? He relinquishes his transcendent glory. He doesn't cease to be God, but he ceases to be seen on the earth as God, veiled in flesh, the carol says. Right? Veiled in flesh. He lived in obedience to the law. Obedience is part of holiness, but it's not all that holiness is. Because what, what does Paul say? All that matters is faith expressing itself in Come on, we just studied this in Galatians. Faith. Love, thank you. All right. Um, And then he sacrifices himself for who? For sinners. Because fundamentally, the identity of the triune God is welfare for the other. The Father, if you read John 17. Or Romans 8, the Father's desire is for the welfare of His Son. 1 Corinthians 15. The Father is looking to exalt the Son. Guess who the Son is looking to exalt? Not Himself. But the Father. Guess who the Spirit is looking to exalt? The Father. The Son. The Spirit is kind of the silent partner who's moving to accomplish the, the mind of the godhead this is the but this is how christ identifies as the obedient one who has made room for us within himself and is concerned about the welfare of sinners love is a form of inclusion It gives others access to all that we are. And that's why why our love for certain ministries in town, how we go and love and we we give and we support, it can come across, if, 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 if this isn't happening, it can come across as the strong helping the weak. When love is meaningful is when we welcome people into who we are. And we give them access to our resources, our time, our energy, our affection, our touch. Vol says, uh, for Jesus, selfhood is defined by the well-being of the other. And so I think the next question is, how do we move from sacrifice to mercy? How do we move Out of this, look at the list of what I've done for God, how much I've given to the church, how much I've given to Extra, how much I've served in my community. Look at the list of the things I've done, how many times I go to church, how many times I've served in the nursery. How do we move from our list of of accomplishments for God to an identity that's rooted in Christ and the grace that we've received? And we'll talk about that next week. Father, thanks for your love. Thanks for showing us what it looks like to love others to make room within ourselves for others pray for your grace to affect our hearts to change how we identify and build our identities so that we can love others the way that you've loved us and so that we can welcome others into our fellowship into our at our table the way that you have welcomed us in christ